Rising family, welcome to the Melanation Healing Project podcast in collaboration with Toledo Moms for Social Justice. I am Daishel Parker, your moderator for episode six, titled, Why is Housing Access Important to Equity? And I'm so honored to introduce our host, starting with Erin Schoen Marsh, journalist and co-founder of Toledo Moms for Social Justice. Thank you for being here, Erin. Thanks for having me, Shelly. You know, I love you. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> and also we have my sister, Tejia Awad, published author and founder of Melanation Healing Project. Thank you so much for being here, Tay-Tay. Hey, girly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you can tell, we're super excited. We have an amazing guest today, Sarah Jenkins. Thank you for being here, Sarah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited and honored to be here. Yes, we are too. We're so happy. I do want to let our listeners know that Sarah Jenkins is the Director of Public Policy and Community Engagement at the Fair Housing Center. Sarah Jenkins has worked for the Fair Housing Center in Toledo since 2015, uh, coordinating media activities, maintaining the organization's online presence, playing a leading role in outreach efforts, including fair housing trainings, community partnerships, also outreach efforts and public policy. Prior to joining the Fair Housing Center, Sarah worked at United Way of Greater Toledo, where she coordinated major events and assisted with marketing activities. She also gained media experience working in the news graphic production of WTOL-TV. Wow, by the way. Um, Sarah <laughs> earned a bachelor's of fine arts degree in filmmaking from Syracuse University as well. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. I know, that's quite a bio, <laughs> I, right? know. I know. Every time, every time people read my bio, it's like, and how are you doing what you're currently doing? Like it's, and it's, it wasn't exactly a straight trajectory, I'll say that. <laughs> so, Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you fell into the work of racial healing mm-hmm. and reconciliation. Well, I think that, um, you know, and as I was kind of joking with my bio, I think that I've, I've just always been very open to new experiences and opportunities as they come my way. And I've been very um, kind of intuitive about what direction to take, which has led me here. Um, not where I thought I would be with a degree in filmmaking, but <laughs> nevertheless, very happy to be where I'm at and doing work that's fulfilling. I think that working at United Way was my first um, nonprofit job. And that was my first experience with, okay, this is what it means to do work that is meaningful, you know, work that is impactful having a job that is not just a paycheck and not just working for a particular company, but actually doing work that benefits your community. And so I think from that point on, it was just, um, I didn't want to do anything else. You know, Mm. I I wanted to do work that was going to be meaningful in some way. And I think just on a personal level, and part of what the, the biggest takeaway for me in my current work has been is on a personal level, I am aware all the time of the the privileges and the advantages that I've had in my life and the realization that unfortunately not everyone has access to those things. Mm. And so I just feel a real, I guess, moral obligation to pay it forward, you know, yeah. to make sure that more people have access to the same opportunities that I did. Um, and so I just think that it's, it's important to do work that is, uh, I'm very fortunate, I'm very blessed um, to be able to do work that is impactful. 
Awesome. Sarah, I want to echo what Shelly mentioned by uh, saying that we do appreciate you uh, being a guest on our show. And I want to say that I appreciate you for being an ally to social justice, because oftentimes it seems as though the black and brown community is the one at the forefront. And I love Mm -hmm. the fact when I see people like you come out and shine your light and be a resource for people like us. Okay. So um, before we get into why housing access is so important, I want to start off by reading a short story that Senator Cory Booker told regarding the very first time his parents purchased a home in the late 60s. And so it says, I quote, In 1969, one year after the passage of the Fair Housing Act guaranteeing equal access to housing for all Americans, regardless of race, religion, or national origin, there was a couple in Washington, D.C., married with two boys who decided to move to New Jersey. While searching for homes, they encountered a practice called, quote, real estate steering, end quote, where Black couples were steered away from certain neighborhoods. The couple grew frustrated, realizing they were being led away from white neighborhoods. So they sought the help of the Fair Housing Council, which set up an elaborate sting operation where this black couple would look at a house, be told it wasn't for sale, and then a white couple would follow and find out that it was for sale, in fact, still on the market. Eventually, this couple found a house in a small New Jersey town that they loved, but were told that the house wasn't for sale once again. They arranged for a white couple to follow them, and lo and behold, the house was, in fact, still for sale. The white couple put a bid on the house, and on the day of the closing, instead of the white couple showing up, the gentleman from the black couple appeared with a volunteer lawyer. The real estate agent became so angry that he punched the lawyer (sighs) and sicked a dog on him. Wow. What? Yet the law was on their side. The Fair Housing Act gave this man and his family rights that were not there just one year prior. And eventually the black couple and their two kids moved into that home in New Jersey. That was in 1969, the year Cory Booker was born. And he said his parents, and I'm going to continue quoting, and that couple was my parents, Carolyn and Carrie Booker. And he says, that's my origin story. The legislation empowered my family to move into the home of their dreams in an all-white neighborhood with incredibly good schools and a great community that gave me my foundation to continue to great colleges and one day serve as a U.S. Senator. Wow. It was the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. And Mm -hmm. he said, quote, I wanted to recognize the heroic activism of those who fought for this landmark bill that has helped millions of Americans like my family, black and brown families. We all must continue the struggle for justice to ensure all Americans have equal access to housing and their choice, end quote. Now, I wanted to read that Take the time to read that to remind our audience that although slavery ended in 1865, there was still decades of a series of oppressions, segregations, humiliations, and denial of many human rights and fair housing was just one of them. So mm-hmm. what a great quote. quote. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so now my question to you is, what do you think about this? 
Oh, gosh. You know, when in hearing that quote, I had so many things come to mind. It's kind of hard to figure out where to even start. But um, that was such a great encapsulation of fair housing and why fair housing is important. I think a couple things, a couple major points is that when we talk about things like redlining, um, which is a historic practice that happened for many decades, where the federal government was deliberately denying home ownership to people who lived in neighborhoods of color. Um, and that, that practice was sanctioned by the federal government. And it caused, not only did it prevent people of color from access to home ownership, but it also led to residential segregation. And, and, and then therefore also over decades led to other types of inequities too, in terms of access to resources and things like that. So when we talk about things like redlining, I think it's really important for people to understand that it's not just a, a term for a historic practice, mm. but it's, it's a current, unfortunately, it's still a very current reality. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's still very difficult to purchase a home in a neighborhood of color. You're still more likely to face barriers if you're trying to purchase a home as a person of color. You know, yes. so, so when we, I, I just think it's so important when we, it's important to learn about history, but also to understand that these are not just historic practices, they're yes. also current, they're current barriers that we're still facing because those practices were in place for such a long time. You know, it's going to take a tremendous amount of work to undo all of the effects of those practices. And one of the things that, that was touched on in, in Senator Booker's statement was this idea of access to opportunity. And that is the core fundamental purpose of fair housing. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Unlike other housing projects or initiatives or different things that, that might focus on just getting people housed, in fair housing, the focus is not on making sure people have a place to live. The focus is on do people have access to live in neighborhoods where they have access to the opportunities and the resources that they need to thrive and succeed. Mm. Because where you live, your zip code plays a really big role in your life outcomes. And absolutely, even in things like your health, right? So mm -hmm. your, your zip code plays a bigger role in your health outcomes than your genetics. And wow. that's because that's because of things like, you know, if you live in a neighborhood, for example, where you don't have access to grocery stores or maybe there aren't parks around, you know, it's harder to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. If you live in certain neighborhoods that have experienced historic disinvestment and discriminatory practices where the housing stock is kind of deteriorated. Right. If you live in, in neighborhoods that are that have been disinvested you're more likely to be exposed to things like uh, mold and lead paint, which lead to lead poisoning and asthma and other health issues, right? Mm -hmm. So where you live has this tremendous impact on your overall well-being and your opportunity to succeed. It, it affects what schools you have access to. It affects what jobs you have access to, whether or not you um, have access to transportation. Um, you know, so many things are impacted by where you live. 
and where you live is really uh, a product of redlining and, and segregation. And so it's, it, it's, it's this really, there, that's the bigger picture of what that quote is capturing. And I think what fair housing is attempting to address is how do we make sure that living in a neighborhood where you have the things you need is not just something that some people are lucky enough to have access to, but it's mm, something that mm -hmm. fundamentally everyone should have access to. Yes. And, and if I can add really quick, it's also, it's not just something that if you work hard, you can achieve it because that mm. is a lie that that's been oh, projected on black communities yes. as well. Some people can look at us and say, mm -hmm. Hey, all you have to do is work hard. Like we do stop mm -hmm. being lazy, stop making excuses. That is, it's generational poverty that we've been placed into that we've been trying to work ourselves out yes. of. So if we can get, get rid of that stereotype, it's not just working hard. That'll get mm -hmm. it. We have to shift policies. We have to shift shift mindsets and we have to do the work that you're doing right now. So thank mm -hmm. you for that. Absolutely. No, thank you for pointing that. Thank you for pointing that out because that is so true. This, this fallacy that we have this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, yeah. mentality that, mm -hmm. that in order to get the things that you need in life, you just have to work hard. But yeah, that's when you, when you have that mentality, you're completely denying the reality of barriers that are in place that people have very little control over. Those are and those are systemic, you know, those mm -hmm. are things that have been in place for a long time. And you have all these things that are sort of connected to each other as well. And that leads right into the next question. Sarah, what's hindering access to fair housing and equity today? Um, and mm -hmm. what does that actually look like in various communities? Mm -hmm. I think that the difference between um, discriminatory practices uh, decades ago, like the example that um, Senator Booker shared, which was a more, I, I guess you could say more of a blatant or obvious example, you know, I mean, they were being very obvious about their, their discrimination. But I think that discriminatory practices, especially today, are much more often are not obvious, you know, and can be much more subtle, can be much harder to detect. So what I mean is things like, you know, somebody making comments to you like, oh, you might feel more comfortable living somewhere else. You know, this mm. would this would be a better fit for you. Those comments might sound like somebody's trying to be helpful, but what they're really doing is steering. And that, that was referenced in the quote is the practice of steering, which is where real estate agents are trying to discourage you from living in a particular area. And so sometimes it's subtle comments like that. Other practices we see are things like, you know, let's say you're calling and leaving messages, but no one calls you back, you know, so uh, like whether yeah. it's whether it's a rental agent or a lender, whoever, you know, you're calling, they're not calling you back. You make an appointment to see a house or an apartment and you show up, but the agent doesn't show up. Um, you know, mm. things like, oh, we lost your application. Can you fill it out again? You know, oh, I know that you gave us a copy of this, but, you know, now we need this additional information. So sometimes there are these kind of tactics put in place that may appear innocuous. You know, it may appear as if somebody is just sort of disorganized or whatever. But what might be happening is they might be doing that deliberately to try to frustrate you or inconvenience you in the hopes that you'll just go away and go somewhere else. And that's just an example of some of the ways that I think it can be very, you know, people have to be really alert to these things because it, it's not always going to be obvious or, or blatant. You also have a lot of policies that can be in place, which have a discriminatory effect 
even if it's not, that's not the intention of the policy. Um, this is something in fair housing that's referred to as disparate impact, which means that, that you have a policy that has a discriminatory effect, even if it wasn't intended to be discriminatory. So for mm. example, you know, when it comes to lending, a lot of banks will have minimum loan values. So they'll say, we're not gonna do any loans below $30,000. And on its surface, that policy may seem neutral because it's not targeting any particular group of people. But the reality is that because of historic disinvestment and discriminatory practices in neighborhoods of color, the home values are going to be comparatively lower. And so mm. a, a policy like that is going to have a disparate impact in neighborhoods of color. So again, you have situations like that too, where it's not, it, it's not even the intention to be discriminatory, but it nevertheless is going to have a bigger impact on, on, on people of color. Being that you are the director of public housing and community engagement for the Fair Housing Center, how much does policy affect our placement within our, our communities? I think policy has a huge role. I mean, I think part of the, um, when, when we understand the history of fair housing and the history of redlining, right, you see that there's a direct correlation between the neighborhoods that were redlined decades ago those are the same neighborhoods today where we see higher concentrations of poverty and unemployment, um, you know, higher, uh, more exposure to health hazards and, and higher rates of different health conditions and things like that. And so there's, there's a direct correlation between those two things, you know, between the, the neighborhoods that were historically disinvested and the neighborhoods that are still um, struggling today. Um, so I think it, when we think about disparities from one neighborhood to another, you know, that didn't just happen by accident. You know, the mm. fact that we have all white suburbs is no, mm -hmm. it, it's, it didn't happen out of the blue. It didn't happen by accident. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. didn't just pop up by magic. Yeah. It happened as a direct result of these practices and policies. So in order to undo all of that, we need to have deliberate policies and practices put in place because it didn't just happen you know, as out of the blue, you know, so we're going to have to take very deliberate steps in order to undo it as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's why policy is so important because, you know, the Fair Housing Act was passed uh, in 1968. So we've had that protection in place for more than 50 years. But that the Fair Housing Act being passed didn't just magically make everything equal. Right. We, we still have. Right. It's, you know, a lot of these inequities and disparities are still in place today. And so, again, that's why it's important to have these practices to try to undo all of the effects of those historic practices. All right. Erin. Yeah. So, first of all, I love that story from Senator Booker because it illustrates how very real racism is, but also how it plays out in day-to-day -day and mm -hmm. important life decisions. And as a white person, it's also helpful to see, hey, look, this is how being an ally can physically, like realistically help someone or be an ally, you know, without those white people to kind of 
display the facade, that Mm -hmm. whole thing wouldn't have worked. So it's also kind of an eye-opening moment because admittedly, I did not really, I didn't realize how much equality and housing are connected. And this idea of real estate steering, I've noticed this in my own life. Um, When I was like 27, buying a house on my own, you know, I was a teacher, so my income was pretty low. And I remember looking at the neighborhood over by Ottawa Park and my real estate agent saying, well, you know, there are a lot of gunshots in the park and this might not be a good fit for you. Mm. Right. So in a way, it was the reverse, right? She was steering me to the white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up buying a little ranch in Sylvania because I was 26, 27. I didn't know. I was just listening. I had just Mm -hmm. moved back to Toledo. So I had no idea what the neighborhoods were. And, um, and then ironically, it ends up that all my friends ended up living in that neighborhood next to Ottawa Park. Mm-hmm. And my sister-in-law lived there. And I was like, I wish I had lived in this neighborhood. But <laughs> So, yeah. That was a major aha moment, too, Erin. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, her thought process was to steer you away from that area. That's yeah. something. I think that that practice is probably more common than people realize, you know, and again, to to Erin's point in her story, you just thought that they were being friendly and helpful, right? You didn't even, you didn't even identify that what she was doing was discriminatory or problematic. Um, Correct. And I think that part of the thing too is, is there's so many different layers to this, right? So you have the fact that there might be a real estate agent that's steering you, or you might have a lender that's denying you uh, a loan. But then let's say you get past all those barriers and you are able to move into the neighborhood where you want to live. Then sometimes what we see is particularly if, say, a person of color is moving into a predominantly white neighborhood, then they're experiencing harassment from neighbors, right? So then, you know, I I guess my point is that the laws and the, the policies need to be in place to allow people to live where they want, which is why, you know, the Fair Housing Act is in place and things like that. But at the end of the day, when we try to create more integrated communities, it's also about those neighbors and those residents being inclusive to that diversity. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. like we have, we have a client, um, Anika Fields, who is a black woman with children who moved into a predominantly white suburb and she was able to move into the neighborhood, right? So there were not housing barriers in place preventing her from moving there. But she she and her children have experienced really severe racial harassment from neighbors. Um, oh, wow. I mean, really terrible things, you know, blocking the sidewalk, um, racial slurs, um, directing their dogs Whoa. to attack her and her family. Um, <gasps> what? Police. This is current day mm-hmm. in in the area. This is happening. Yeah, I'm not is, shocked. And, I am not shocked. I am not shocked. And you know, calling the police for, because she's hanging out on her porch or her front lawn. You know, just those those kinds of things. And then you have it, it, so police are getting called out to the scene. And then you know, the one of the police officers has made comments to her that maybe she should just move. Wow. And, and so I've heard of stuff like that. So, so my point is that there, there's sort of like, there's, there's layers to this. So it's about policies in the housing industry to make sure people have access to housing, but then it's also about what happens after somebody moves there, you know, are they safe and are they welcome 
in that neighborhood when they do move there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Shelly. Um, that goes back to what I was saying about me appreciating people like you, Sarah, being an ally to the Black and Brown community mm-hmm. because it's multifaceted. And there's so many layers. We need neighbors. We need Mm -hmm. people who are willing to open up their eyes and willing to say, hey, you know, that's not right. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only just break the the systemic issues, but kind of dismantle the cultural issues Mm -hmm. in those neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. because that's not my first time hearing about stuff like that. But unfortunately, um, with black and brown communities, we only feel comfortable talking about that amongst Uh women. We don't Mm -hmm. feel, we don't feel open enough to talk to our white friends or our white neighbors because unfortunately we live in a society where if I don't feel it, it doesn't exist. If I don't experience it, then Mm, it doesn't exist. And then we, we talk about, we want to highlight the 1% or that very, very small percentage of black people that you see who are successful, mm-hmm. not realizing that they are, they, they're the exception. They are, mm. they're not the actual real representation of what's going on with, with black people, you know, trying to get equity um, when it comes to housing and when it comes to any other area that we're just trying to advance in. So that's why I'm so, 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 so grateful that you are, you're, you're saying things that me and Shelly probably can't say, and you are you are saying what you see and you are saying what you experience. And that's another aspect of dismantling the, uh, discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I do, I think it's yes. important for, it's important to tell these stories, you know, and to, that was part of why, I mean, we work to get um, some media attention around Anika's story because it's like, people do need to realize that this is happening. And yes, it is happening mm-hmm. in 2021. I mean, the story, when you hear it, you think it's a story from the 1950s. And then when you hear that it's today, yeah. I think it's, that's kind of, that's eye opening for a lot of people that, you know, this is still, this is still a really big issue. And again, it goes back to white suburbs don't just happen by accident. And part of it is those systemic barriers, but then part of it is also actions like this. Because how many people, I mean, Anika has been so brave to continue fighting this and saying, no, this is wrong. I shouldn't have to move. But how many many people would just move? You know what I mean? How many people would just move because who wants to live through that? Right. Especially with kids. Right. You know, and it's a trauma response. You know, when you do things that aren't healthy or fair to yourself, it's a trauma response is to keep the peace. That's what we call mm-hmm. it. You know, just to keep the peace. I'll run. I'll run away from the situation to to stay safe. And, you know, it's a trauma response. It's it's, it's really sad. Exactly. And it goes so mm. much further than just that family, too, because when that is happening, other people see that happening and that's going to make other people feel uncomfortable and unwelcome and unsafe moving into that mm-hmm. neighborhood too. So then it just sort of perpetuates. Very true. Erin, do you want to add anything? No, not, <laughs> not on that one. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So Sarah, um, how can a regular person like myself become mm-hmm. more engaged with policymaking around housing? You know, I think that oftentimes there's this bigger focus around what's happening at the national level. And while that is important, you know, that's a lot for the average person to take on. You know, if you're just trying to sort of help and um, do what you can, I think that that can be overwhelming when you look at the, the things that are going on at the national level. But I think it's really important for people to realize how much impact your local government can have on policies. So, 
you know, people should be engaged with their local government, no matter where you live. Um, you have a mayor, you have a city council, you should, you know, be looking at the agendas, you should be um, contacting your representatives and telling them how you feel about different issues. You can submit comments on different things. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of people overlook um, when it comes to policy is, is those local policy decisions. But those mm -hmm. can have a tremendous impact. As an example of that, um, one of the things um, that a lot of people are not, that, that doesn't get a lot of attention is planning and zoning, which I know is this really dry, boring topic, right? But planning and zoning historically has been a source of housing inequity. So here's an example of what I mean by, by zoning. So in a lot of neighborhoods, particularly suburban neighborhoods, those areas will be zoned for single family housing only. When you zone something for single family housing only, what are you preventing? You're preventing multifamily developments. And mm. when you prevent multifamily developments, that is going to prohibit both racial integration and income integration from happening. Another example of that is when you look at environmental justice issues, right? We know that um, communities of color are more likely to be exposed to different health hazards and we see a lot of um, higher rates of different health conditions. And part of that, there's many reasons for that, but part of that is when you look at historic like planning maps, things like landfills and factories and other kind of pollution, pollution causing industries were located adjacent to neighborhoods of color. Ah. So the fact that neighborhoods of color have, you know, poor air quality, poor water quality, you know, and deteriorated housing stock, all of these kinds of things, of course, you're going to see health disparities because the quality of the air and the water and the housing is being affected. So that's just an example. I, I bring that up because zoning, I think planning and zoning is something that most people don't pay attention to. Most people probably don't um, really think of it as, as having any kind of real impact on equity, but it does. And zoning is something that is controlled at the local level. You know, your state, oh, your mm. state and your federal government are not controlling that. Your local city council is controlling that. Wow. Um, so that's why I would just say, I think for, for anybody to get involved in your local government and attend meetings and submit comments and pay attention to what's going on, because um, there's a lot that can be done. And along those lines, I mean, I think that people are aware of the importance of planning and zoning, or at least white people are, because when there's, you know, a multifamily unit mm. plan to go in, the suburbs, all the, the white people in the suburbs get very upset and people will say like, well, we don't want low income housing mm -hmm. here. Imagine the kind of people that will come in. And those <laughs> are the people that go to the city council meetings and fight against mm -hmm. it. You know, so we I guess we need to do the opposite and say, no, no, we yes, want that's that. a big yes, point. We want right diversity. Yes. NIMBYism is alive and well. Unfortunately, we see that a lot, uh, particularly NIMBYism, meaning not in my backyard. And oh, I was wondering yeah, what that was. And, um, 
we see that a lot, particularly with housing that is going to be like, let's say permanent supportive housing or affordable housing, or particularly if it's like housing for people in recovery, you know, a lot of Mm. times neighbors will come out and say, you know, we don't want this here. It's going to cause the crime rates to go up. It's going to cause our home values to go down, you know, those types of things. And so again, this is an area where, yes, the policies are important. So the planning and zoning, you want to be in place to allow the, that type of housing to happen. But then you also have this element of what are the neighbors and the residents doing and saying to prohibit that from happening? And that mm-hmm. kind of exists outside the space of where policy is. You know, policy can only go so far. You can't really control neighbors coming out and speaking out against a housing project. You can't really control neighbors harassing another neighbor. You know, so there's those things, the policies and practices um, are not going to be able to cover that. You know, so that's that's where we mm-hmm. have other types of things need to come into mm-hmm. play. Tay-Tay, do you want to say anything? Um, I'm just absorbing it and taking it all in. I believe that Black people, we are educated in stuff like voting. And, but I really think it's a generational thing. Um, I believe that we need to get more, uh, the younger generation and the, or the, in the past few generations that are coming up to be more involved in policy mm-hmm. because it's one thing to vote, but then after we vote, we really need to teach people to be involved in policy on a local level, because that, like you said, Sarah, that is what changes, makes changes in the areas that we live in. And I do want to say also that that is one of the things that the Melanation Healing Project is striving for in stage between stage two and stage three of the Melanation Healing Project. We want to get people to a place after healing and recovering from cultural and racial trauma and showing up better. Then we want to teach people how to be more hands-on in society and policy, being involved in their local policymaking is one of the things that we are planning to do, to teach people how to be more involved on a local level. So I am happy that you said that, Sarah. Yeah, and I I mean, I think it's just so important and and it's sometimes so overlooked, but you can have such a real impact um, at the local level. Absolutely. Mm. You know, and just, I just want to add, like, even this year, I've been trying to, because I I live in Columbus, I have been trying to make sure I'm aware of my community. Like, even me being in the Canal Winchester area, I got an invitation for the town hall, and I'm going to show up, you know, (laughs) because Mm. that's what needs to change. You know, um, Mm -hmm. having these emotions and and, um, recovering from all this trauma has to be put into action. Um, so that my children in the future are able, you know, to be able to go and look at a house and, and not feel like they're being steered in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And you, like you said, that's at a local level. You know, we have to mm-hmm. get more involved and know who these people are. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in a p- very particular situation right now. I think that because of everything that happened over the past year, you know, I think that with the Black Lives Matter protests that were going on, with the pandemic, which raised awareness of a lot of housing inequities, um, I think I want to take advantage of this moment where there's this heightened awareness issues, issues that, you know, for those of us who are involved in this work, we knew that these issues were happening for a long time. But now there's a, a sort of greater awareness of the public and the media 
on a lot of these systemic issues. And I think we mm-hmm. really need to like harness this and take advantage of this moment that everybody's paying attention to this now and really get a lot of a lot of changes in place. I mean, I think we've been able to do a lot at the local level just in the last year that we had not been able to do for quite some time. And I think a lot of that is because people are more aware of these issues. Um, We had a policy passed um, actually just in December in the city of Toledo. It was a source of income protection. And this is something that we had been fighting for for I want to say like three years. Um, Source of income protection refers to the fact that you can't be turned away because you are paying your rent with a non-traditional income. So let's say Mm. you have a voucher, right? Let's say you have a housing choice voucher to pay your rent. Housing choice vouchers are a form of public housing assistance where instead of living in public housing, you receive a voucher towards housing that you can use out in the private market. But a lot of times what happens is that people with vouchers are turned away because landlords will flat out say no Section 8. You know, they'll say, no, we don't accept vouchers. And Mm -hmm. so what the the reality of what happens is that people with vouchers or other non-traditional income end up having very limited choices of housing. Right. And and often very poor quality choices of housing. They're often restricted to living in lower income, lower opportunity areas. And so the effect of that is that it perpetuates racial concentrations of poverty. Right. It keeps people from being able to move out into higher opportunity areas. And, and you're talking about somebody who has the ability to pay the rent. Right. It's not that they can't afford it. It's that they're being turned away because I'm paying my rent with a voucher instead of with money that I get from a paycheck. Mm. And so this becomes a, a, a tremendous systemic barrier and, and prevents not only better racial integration, but it also prevents economic integration from happening. And so we were able to get source of income protection passed in the city of Toledo in December of last year. Um, and this is this is huge. I mean, this is a very progressive policy, especially for our area to have something like this in place, um, I think is really, really exciting. I think it's, a again, a sign of the fact that there's a greater level of awareness of a lot of these issues and the need to address these issues. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some takeaways for our listeners that we can highlight in helping um, bring healing to their local communities? Sarah? Um, I think I would say first and foremost is know the history. I think that, and I'm not, I'm talking about the history that we don't learn in school. (laughs) Um, You know, part Mm. of, a big part of when I go out and I do fair housing trainings and presentations is I do talk about the history of redlining. And I think it's so important because we're not we're not taught about these things in school. And so I think it's imperative for all of us, particularly for white folks, to educate themselves on the history. To, because I don't think that you can really understand the situation that we're in and really have a good plan for how to move forward unless you first mm-hmm. understand how we got here. I, I think there first has to be this sort of awareness for, uh, for the fact that the inequities that we have today are the direct result of past policies. So, you know, mm. you, ha- you have to have the awareness of that history. And certainly over the last few years, there's been no shortage of 
books and podcasts and documentaries, you know, about racial justice and social justice issues. So there's, there's plenty of content for people to educate themselves on these issues. So I would Mm -hmm. say, I, I would say that is one, I would say getting involved as we talked about in your local government would be another one. And I think that it's also a beyond policy, right? The beyond policy piece is like, what are the things that each of us can be doing in our own personal lives and in our own personal spaces? So what are you doing in your neighborhood? What are you doing in your workplace to be more inclusive? You know, so what happens when somebody moves into the neighborhood that looks different than everybody else? You know, what are you what are you doing to make that person feel comfortable and welcome? What are you doing to stand up and speak out when you see somebody being harassed or being mistreated? When you're at a dinner party, what are you doing to call out somebody who's making a statement that's biased? You know, Mm. so it's like there's those opportunities all the time in in just our daily lives. There are all these opportunities to to address these things. You know, mm-hmm. there's Thanks there's on. simple there's simple little things I think that we can do all the time every day. There's a lot of aha moments here. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just taking it all in and learning from Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, for me, um, I I can't emphasize enough, and I want to take use this platform to let um, also our allies know to um, not just look to the people who is in close proximity to them. So there are people who may be around minority, have minority friends, black and brown friends, and who may not experience um, the level of housing injustices that we are talking about. So I just want to encourage our allies to look beyond the people that they're in close proximity with and hone in a little bit more on the bigger picture. So you might have to step outside of your group, Mm -hmm. even if your group is diverse, you may have to step outside of that group and look at the community, go into a community that we are talking about, go into these communities, start talking about talking to people who are different Mm -hmm. than you. Um, When you go travel, don't just go to the nice areas, go into the, into, into the compromise areas also. And just, just, uh, just be a little more open and just kind of step outside a little bit more to, to broaden your scope of understanding. Absolutely. And I think also, and particularly for white folks, is you have to understand that you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. You know, these, you, yes. you, you have to be, we're never going to get anywhere if people are not willing to be uncomfortable. And also, I think it's about understanding that we have to be willing to disrupt the status quo. Because the status quo is what has kept these inequities in place. So we, you know, things just continuing the way they have always been, we, we can't continue down that path. If we really want true equity and true justice, we're going to have to be uncomfortable and we're going to have to disrupt some systems. I know that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You have that, to be, you know, you're going to, you're going to be inconvenienced, <laughs> you know, like it, that's just that, that's how, that's how it mm-hmm. works. You know, and the crazy part about it is it's like, it, it is an inconvenience until you realize that you lack empathy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, wow. like you're uncomfortable that's a good because one, you're Shelley. not empathetic. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Of course, you know, oh my, I got to step out of my wow. my safety net and go and experience and roll up my sleeves and get in the mud. You know, it's it's not it's mm-hmm. not uncomfortable to a person that can naturally empathize with another human being. 
Mm -hmm. And exactly. But I think to your point, step outside of your bubble, you know, meet people that are different than you go into neighborhoods other than the one that you live in. Because I think part of the problem with um, part of the problem with discrimination and, and stereotypes and things like that is that if you don't know people that are different than you, I think that makes it easier to label and to stigmatize and to have fear and hate when you don't know people. Once you bridge that gap and you know people on a personal level, I think it's much harder to sort of see them as other and you start seeing people as people. And so I think that that is a really big factor as well. Mm. Although I would add to that, I think that sometimes people see their friends as the exception mm. and they continue to other everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So it's finding that middle ground of saying, of making those connections and then also applying it to the larger world. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Tejia, do you want to add something? Um, yeah, just really quickly. And I know we, you, uh, we got to wrap up, but I want to give a quick shout out to my babies because um, I started this journey, the Melanation Healing Project, uh, it was my pain that brought me here, but it's my kids and, and the, the youth and, and the future that keeps me going. So I want to give a shout out to my babies, uh, Jacob, Joseph, Sulema, and Fayrouz. I, I'm sure Aww. they will probably <laughs> never hear this, but my babies have been my babies have been on my heart. And I want you all to know that everything that I do, I'm, I'm working to show up better for my babies. I'm trying to yes. create safe spaces for us us to heal for you. I love you. Mama loves Aww. you. Mm. Now you're making me all teary <laughs> I know, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and they will hear it because this is going to be on the record, you know? So even if it's later on in life, they'll always have that moment. That's just beautiful. Wow. Mm-hmm. I appreciate oh, it. Now that just shifted me into my favorite part, which <laughs> is... <laughs> Just leaving on a lighter note, you know, because the conversations, they get really intense um, Mm -hmm. and not in a negative way, in a positive way. It's a a healthy dialogue, but we want to shift the energy. So I would, I cannot wait to hear your answer, Sarah. (laughs) Who or what is your favorite YouTuber? Um, I know. I hit you with that one, huh? Oh, wow. (laughs) I was not expecting that. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, and I I don't know that I would be able to name any, like if I would know the names offhand, but um, I love, I'm a big fan of, so I'm, uh, I eat a mostly plant-based diet and I'm very much into cooking. So I watch a lot of cooking um, videos on YouTube. Um, love seeing different, you know, it's crazy to me, especially over the pandemic, like people have rediscovered cooking and baking and like people making all these kinds of things from scratch is just really fascinating. I also love, there's a lot of really great, um, kind of meditation, um, videos on, on YouTube. Mm. So I'm sorry, I can't think of any specific like name of a, of a channel or anything, but, um, you kind of caught me off guard. With that one. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, I would say cooking videos and, and meditation videos, I think are kind of my favorites, um, on YouTube. There's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. All right. So Aaron, come on, what's your, who's your favorite YouTuber? <laughs> 
Oh, well, also, I, I, so I have a pretty severe hearing loss, and I tend to avoid anything that is audio-based. So honestly, I don't watch YouTube stuff. But I will say I love Instagram, and I have so many people that I love following. Um, for the food thing, Palestine on a Plate is a really mm. good um, Instagram account. Mm. Um, uh, for Diversity Plus Yoga, Wellness Yogini is amazing. Um Diane Bondi official, I think is her Instagram handle. She's also working on yoga inclusivity. Um, so yeah, so there's that, that would be more my speed, the Instagram as opposed to YouTube. <laughs> Even though I post yoga videos to YouTube, I don't actually watch YouTube very often. <laughs> All right, sis, I know you're a YouTuber. Who's your favorite uh, channel or person? Okay, so um, don't judge me because, <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> because um, yes, I, outside of all this healing stuff, I do, I, I, I love watching a little bit of uh, um, things that may not be, you know, quite couth. Um, however, <laughs> uh, let's see here. My, I've been binging on Lovely Tea 2002, and she's been my guilty secret and guilty pleasure for the past <laughs> several years she does um celebrity news and she also does just you know ju just uh just general news also but she puts her own little twist on it she puts her homegirl her homegirl attitude yes. and i love it because that's where i came from she just she reminds me of home she reminds me of stickney yeah which is uh one one of the places i grew up on anyone who lives in toledo they know about stickney <laughs> so you know and and i love it she gives me life i can't wait till the weekend comes every week so so i can flip on her channel and see what's happening yes i'm gonna check her out i think i might know who you're talking about but i'm definitely gonna check mm -hmm. it out all right now um so sarah is there any like any projects that you have coming up or um any information uh for just as far as like social platforms for uh, our listeners if they needed to uh, get information on um the fair housing mm -hmm. um updates or any meetings and things like that Mm -hmm. I, I would say our website is a good place to go to. Our website is Toledo FHC. So that's F as in fair, H as in housing, C as in center.org. Um, and we have a lot of good information and resources on there. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can follow us to see, um, you know, if we have upcoming events and things like that going on. Um, but we're here as a community resource. I just, I, I would want to make sure that people know that we're here if people are experiencing housing discrimination, um, we're here to assist and all of our services are free and confidential. So I would hope that people would feel um, comfortable reaching out to us. Um, that's what we're here for. Awesome. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for your, your amazing energy. You're so calm and you just have like this natural calmness to you when you're speaking, <laughs> you know, um, mm -hmm. and your, your experiences and you're, you're just just so truthful in what's really going on. And I, I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. We also want to thank all of our listeners for their support and feedback. You guys can follow our um, podcast on iTunes, Google. Here we go, you guys. Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Um, for questions and comments or more information on our uh, next Healing Circle, um, you can email us at Project at gmail.com. But we also want you to follow us on Facebook at our Melanation Healing Project page um, so that you can register. For more information on Erin and Toledo Moms for Social Justice, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Toledo Moms for Social Justice. Um, you guys stay tuned for next week's episode with our special guest, uh, Deanna Patton. 
as we discuss how can integration, diversity, and inclusion lead to healing. So I just want to tell you guys, have an amazing and peaceful day. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.